0: turn with me, please, to the book of Habakkuk, which if you're opening a Bible that we have here in the book racks and the chairs in front of you, you'll be on page 807. 807. Yeah, kids, if you haven't left yet, have at it. They're like, what? Habakkuk, I'm out of here. Um. Yeah, you guys can head back. Have some fun. See you in a bit. All right, we're on page 807. I'd like to read the text, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 6 to 20. It reads like this. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, faming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pouring it from the wine skin till they are drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands, cities, and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, there is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask as we've opened up your scriptures that you, by your Spirit, through your word, would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to recognize your rulership of this world that you've made and your concern over the evil practices that, that are found both in the world and within our hearts. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to hear the good news of the gospel even as we hear your word of judgment on we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, in chapter 2, if you remember kind of the flow of how this book is unfolding, Habakkuk is a prophet who is concerned with the evil in the world. But, but Habakkuk actually initially is looking at the people of God, and he says to God, Why do you make me look at this, Lord? Why, why do you cause me to look on the violence of the people of God, and how long will this carry on? And Habakkuk is pretty upset with the disappointing world in which he lives, and God replies to him, and he says, I know, I hear your complaint, I agree with you, I'm going to send the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment. Habakkuk goes, wait a minute, you're going to do what now? I thought you were God, you're a holy God, how can you use the Babylonians as an instrument of your judgment? How can you use a, a wicked people to accomplish your purposes? And Habakkuk raises an additional complaint and says, I'm going to wait for God to reply. And that's what he does at the beginning of chapter 2. And then God begins to speak. God gives him this incredible word. What we find here in our passage today in verses 6 to 20 is God gives a word of warning regarding sin. He gives five different warnings, and he's explaining the severity of what, what God is seeing and and ultimately what God is going to do. And so we have here five words of warning and one overarching lesson. That's our organization today. We're going to fly through the words of of warning, uh, looking at them one at a time and trying to make sure we understand what's going on. And then at the end, we're going to spend considerable time thinking through this one lesson that this whole chapter gets at. Let's get to work. Five different words of warning. They come in the form of this interesting word called woe, W-O-E. Thought about it this week, and I recognize we don't have anything comparable, right? We don't, it, it's a word of warning, but it's a very specific way of saying it. And I was trying to think, what, what would be a contemporary way to say this? And I couldn't come up with anything. I mean, we can say, be warned. Uh, we can say, you're put on notice. We can say, hey, you know, trouble's coming. We can say all kinds of different things, but this one word, W O E, woe, is a way that the Bible kind of encapsulates this coming judgment of God. Woe and it uses it and there's just a, a weight to it that that's hard to capture. But I'm I'm calling them words of warning here. There are five of them, five different woes. Let's take them one at a time. The first one, woe to him who gathers to himself through unjust means, meaning there there's a way of doing life that is taking advantage of other people for one's own benefit. There's a way of doing life where you're you're organizing the world around you to try to squeeze out as much benefit as you possibly can. For your own ends, for your own gain, for your own benefit. Look at verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. It's taking. It, so what it's saying is, be warned. Anyone who is taking advantage of other people and taking their goods and their services and their resources and using it to build up one's own wealth. Um, Bruce Waltke, the Old Testament professor, uh, there was a line in his his, uh, book on Proverbs, and we did a a series on Proverbs a little while back, and this one line just, it captured, it kind of, they keep going back to it. So this uh, Old Testament scholar spent his life studying the scriptures, and he boils down the difference between the righteous and the wicked, and he puts it very plainly like this. He says the difference between the righteous and the wicked can be explained like this. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the, they're willing to do Whatever is required to be of benefit to other people, whereas the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community and anyone else for their own sake. That's the difference. As he reads Proverbs and all of the Old Testament, he comes to that conclusion. He's like, that's my opinion. Here's how it works. Righteous people do what is required for the good of others, whereas wicked people are willing to take advantage of whomever for their own sake. That's what we find here in verse 6. Woe to those who are taking advantage of others for their own sake who are looking at the world and trying to make it work simply for their own gain. And God says, I see that, and I will not permanently allow that. What we find here in this chapter is God says, judgment is coming and the tables will turn. So what uh, Habakkuk is concerned with, with the Israelites, and what God says will happen when the Babylonians come in, God says, that's not a permanent feature of this world. That's going to be turned around. I'm going to put that one on its head. I'm going to to turn the tables so that these individuals who are doing evil, violent things, one day the judgment of God will come back on them, both in real time and ultimately, he will say. Look at verse 7. This is what's going to happen in the first woe. Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. It's saying, you look so confident and so self-absorbed right now. You look so, you've got a swagger about you. And he says, but there's a day coming where the people that you've taken advantage of will rise up against you. Your your creditors will call your account uh, forward and you will have to repay them. You will tremble. And you have preyed upon others with all of your violence and all of the wicked things that you've done to your advantage. But there's a day coming where you will be the prey. You will be the one on the receiving end of misfortune. He says, verse 8, Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to you who use unjust gains to your own advantage. God sees it. He knows. He will call you to account. Secondly, woe to the builder who builds a home that's luxurious and secure, but it has no reference to God and God's ways. Verse 9, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. It's saying woe to those who are building up their house, their, their fame, their, their notoriety in the world. Woe to those who are building themselves up and are placing themselves in a figurative way in a position that's secure, building your nest on high uh, to, to be free from the concern of the clutches of ruin. You, you have built your house and you have this illusion of security, like you live in a gated community. But he's saying you are not safe. Woe to those who have built up your house by unjust gain. Um, and and people do this. Um, it, we, like the Babylonians will do it. They'll they'll march in. They'll destroy everything. They'll take over, and then they'll be like, "Who can stand against us? Look at our army. We beat everybody." Uh, they'll they'll have this hubris about them, and God is saying. You think that you have built this thing that is secure and permanent and formidable, but you are not safe from God's justice. Your house will testify against you, verse 10. You've plotted the ruin of many people's shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. You have done this, but you've done it on the backs of many people, and here's what happens. You have a house that is formidable, but that house has shame about it. There's a shame about your house. You you have done this in an an inequitable way, and therefore what you have established is something that God looks at, and he says, "That that is not glory for you. That is shame. All the impressive accomplishments of your life and how you got there are not something for you to revel in. They're something to be embarrassed over. Your house is to your own shame, and you have forfeited your life. People think that they're establishing something that is going to make them eternally happy, that they can build their life in such a way that if they get the things that they want, they will just live happily ever after. And God is saying, sometimes what we think will bring us the greatest happiness is actually a for- forfeiture of your life. You're, you're handing over what really is significant, and you're trading for something that's ultimately going to disappoint the New Testament, the Lord himself puts it like this in Matthew 16, 25. He says, What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Woe to those who are building up a house in unjust ways and imagining that their life is going to be secure and permanent and blissful. Does The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will act. Your house will testify against you what you have established in the earth will actually be the evidence used against you. This is a terrifying thought. If you were to audit your life and to think about all the incredible accomplishments that you have, but also the shortcuts that you've taken and the, the, the ability to selfishly make choices for your own advantage and to the disadvantage of others, God is saying, I'm going to call that into account. And, and even the things that you have established and built up will, will have a testimony against the woodwork will echo it. The beams will cry out. All right. Third, woe to the cultural architects, the people who are building up social structures, who are establishing a city by violence. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Now we're looking not just at an individual and their own uh, desire for advantage, and we're not just looking at a person's home or uh, namesake. Now we're looking at a societal structure. And he's saying, you know, we, we live together. We make choices as to who is in charge and the decisions that are made and the policies that we follow. And it's saying, woe to those who have built up a society through violence. Look at verse 13. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Woe to those who are building up these societal structures on the backs of other people. And and we're being told here that the people who are doing that, that are the workers that are making this happen, that are building these societal structures, that actually will become fuel for the fire of judgment. Um, The idea shows up in the New Testament. The New Testament says as much. The choices that we are making are used in judgment. James writes a, a letter to the church. So this is to believers, but he's saying to those who are rich, be he's saying be warned he doesn't say "woe," but he says something very similar listen up rich people here's something you need to be aware of and we'll put it up on the screen for your consideration but look at verses three and following of James chapter five it says your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you've hoarded wealth in the last days look here's the idea that we saw in Habakkuk chapter two the labor of the people it says Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. They're testifying. They're crying out. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on on earth in luxury and self-indulgent. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing. James is writing to the church and he's saying, those of you that have gotten rich through shady strategies, through taking advantage of other people, the the wages that you should have paid are actually testifying against you. The, the work that was being performed for you is actually testifying against you, and, and the people's labor is fuel for the fire. We need to hear these words of warning with with a, the severity that they carry. The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. This, wor- this work of building up social structures in this way, God is saying, they are vain. What appears to be so impressive, if you were to look at uh, Babylon, one of the the commentators said the people would come into the city of, of Babylon and they would look at all of these buildings and all of these gardens and all of these things that were built up, and they would be so impressed by them. But God's evaluation, when God looks at that and he says, I know how this was accomplished. I know how this was built. I know the unjust practices that led to this conclusion. And what God sees is this is vain. This is nothing. The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. And the psalmist says a very similar thing in Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It's, it's, a, it's a work project, but if God is not endorsing of it, it doesn't matter how grandiose it becomes. If God is not standing behind it, if he's not involved in it, if he's not the one who has both architected and built this thing, it's nothing. You are exhausting yourself for nothing. You are building in vain. So woe to those who are building up societal structures and imagining, look at us, we're doing quite well. And God says, I see this, and I know the motivations behind it. This will not always be the case. Fourth, we see the woe to those who exploit and take advantage of others. And I've got young ears in here, so I need to be careful of this uh, figurative language, but I, I won't explain it very deeply, but you you will get the, the gist of it here. In verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wine skin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked body. It's intoxication with the intent of exploitation. It's, it's recognizing this kind of malicious intent to do harm to another through getting them drunk and getting them naked. Look at verse 16. God says, I'm not okay with that. I am not okay with that you will be filled with shame instead of glory you you might boast about those exploits you might boast about that kind of behavior but here's what god says you will be filled with shame instead of glory now it is your turn drink and let your nakedness be exposed the cup from the lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory it's talking about god saying i see it all and and nothing escapes my judgment, and those who perform these sorts of acts will be called to account, they will be forced to drink the Lord's cup. Now, what is the Lord's cup? If you read scripture, you find out that God does have a cup, and it is the cup of his wrath. You see it in Psalm 75, verse 8, and Isaiah 51, verse 17, where it's explained. You see it also in Jeremiah 25, 15, and we'll put this one up for you. This is what the Lord says. The God of Israel said to me, take from my right hand the cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. It's the cup of the wrath, the Lord himself. And the people who are perpetrators of this evil, God says, "You, you will drink my cup. You've taken advantage and exploited other people, but there's a day coming where I will call you to account and you will drink my cup. Verse 17, the violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. It's talking about the uh, ecological exploitation. It's talking about the fact that Christians are actually supposed to care for creation. That people who are following God in his ways need to need to be mindful of the world that we have been entrusted with. That we need to look after uh Plants and trees and animals and all these different things. Um, I, in my opinion, it's an area of discipleship that's underdeveloped. But we're we're meant to do this. That's what verse 17 is talking about. Lebanon is known for its for its cedar for its trees. And violence is being done here in this case, where the cedars are being stripped and used for evil purposes. There's a destruction of animals here, and it's being described here that will result in being terrified. Lands are being destroyed here. So what, what we recognize as followers of God is God has entrusted us with this world. And followers of his ought to care for it and do a good job here. We need to, we need to be able to care for uh, you know, creation and animals. Proverbs puts it like this, and I need to be careful because we've got some crazy dog ladies and crazy cat people in here, and I don't want to encourage bizarre behavior, but Proverbs 12 says, the righteous care for the needs of their animals but even the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. But God is telling us that we need to be the kind of people who are aware of the world that he has entrusted to our, our care and consent. And that, that involves even our pets. But here we have those who are taking advantage of the world and stripping it bare for their own destructive purposes. And God is saying, woe to anyone who is exploiting and taking advantage of others or this world. God sees it, and he will call it to account. Finally, woe to the idolater! Look at verse 18. It says, Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Talking about idolatry here, and this can be lost on us because we don't do exactly what they did in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, they would have gods of of um, rain or gods of power and status, or gods of sexuality. They'd have all these different gods, and what they would do is an, a craftsperson would take an item of wood or metal and would fashion a little figurine. And then you'd buy it from them and you'd take it home and you'd go, this is a, this is one of my gods. You put it up on your on your shelf, on your altar, and you know, maybe a, a season like this, you're like, man, we need some rain. So I'm going to pray to my idol of rain and I'm going to worship and serve it and offer it some sacrifices and hope that this this God would send me rain. And we go, oh, that's archaic. That's weird, right? And we might wrongly conclude that idolatry is no longer an issue in the world. But the truth is, we are idolaters. As one reformer puts it, our, the human heart is an idol factory. We're constantly making these little things. We just no longer fashion them the same way and bow down to them. We we, we are um we worship and serve all kinds of things that just look different. We worship and serve our hobbies. And, and, and our altars are, are websites devoted to those hobbies. And we sit on them and we just read them and look at them and dwell on them and imagine, oh man, the, my life would be heaven on earth if I could have everything like this. Or, or status. And we go through our social feeds and you look at all these different things that we're worshiping and we're serving and we're trying to appease those gods and we're trying to go, how can I get this god on my side, how can I make this God happy? And God is saying anytime that we worship and serve something other than the creator God, that is idolatry. And we do this in all sorts of different ways. We do this in our relationships. We do this in our vocations. We do this in, in, in almost every way imaginable. We have these idols. And God is saying, what value could that possibly hold? You were worshiping and serving these idols that are your own creation and that cannot speak. Look at verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. It can't talk back to you. Why would you give your life over to it? Why would you allow this thing to to exert incredible influence over you? Why would you worship and serve a created thing rather than the creator God? These things cannot speak. They have no breath in them. But verse 20 tells us God does. He does speak. He is alive. He is active. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before. Him. He is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent Okay, we went through the five different words of warning. I wanted them in front of you so that we could learn this one overarching lesson from our pastor. Here's what it is. God has the final word on sin. God gets the final say on sin. We can look at the world. We can be like Habakkuk and look at the, the people of God, the, the local church, if you will, and we can say, this is really disappointing that there is so much corruption and injustice. That there's so much petty divisiveness within the people of God. We can look at the church like Habakkuk and say, hey, God, I don't get it. Why are you causing me to look on these things? Or we can look at the world and we can look out there and we can think, man, uh, what's, what's wrong with this world? It's broken. God, how do you allow this stuff to happen? Or we can look at human history and go, you know, there are, there are all these kind of evil, corrupt things going on. And God says, yeah, I'm aware of that and I will have the final say here. I am aware of all that you're concerned with and how your heart breaks over these things, and I share those concerns and that heartbreak as well, but here's what you need to know. I see it, and I will do something about it. I will have the final say here. Now, that's the one overarching lesson. It sounds simple. It is not. So let's ask five questions and allow the text to answer. Here's my first question. Who does this word from the Lord indict? Whose sin are we talking about here? If God is going to have the final say, they on sin whose sin are we talking about now the, the easy answer is to say well the babylonians sin like that's habakkuk's issue here the chaldean army is going to come in and they're a bunch of awful people and so god is saying yeah I, i'm aware of that i'm going to do something i will judge them it's easy to look at this and go yeah that's the that's the answer the babylonians will not always prevail and they did not i'll show it to you in a few moments here but there's also an additional answer. If you're reading the book of Habakkuk, it started with the concern of the people of God, the evil and the violence within God's own people. And so if you're reading this and you hear the voice of God, Habakkuk is not just going to go, yeah, you get them, God, that evil world out there, those Babylonians, you sick them, God, get those, those awful people and make this world better. If you're hearing the voice of God, like Habakkuk would be in this situation, he's going to recognize real quick, oh, the Babylonians are indicted, but so are we. The people of God are also under the consideration of God's judgment. That we too, anywhere where there's sin, God is concerned with it and will have the final word. The word condemns sin in all of its forms and in all of the places where it is found. God is aware of what's going on and and he wants us to recognize he will have the final say. So we need to be careful because a lot of the language that I hear from Christians nowadays Is talking about the evil world out there, the the boogeymen out there, and all the bad things that are happening out there. But God is saying, anywhere where there's sin, including in here, we need to be aware that He will not allow it. One of the sayings we have in my household, if you're a parent, you'll get this. Parent with multiple siblings, you'll get this really quick. We have to say it's not a contest, right? Like my kids will be doing whatever. Like it is not a contest. Like I'll race you to the top of the steps, and you know you're like it's not a contest. Uh, I'll race you in brushing my teeth. It's not a contest. Christians need to hear that same message because we look at the world and we need to hear it's, it's not a contest. Like we're not trying to point out there and say they're the worst sinners. So God is mainly concerned out there. The New Testament actually says it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. So when we think about sin, it would be an error, I would say, if we only imagine it happening beyond these walls. And we go the real problem is the world and we need to, we need God to get on board with fixing that what we should be doing is recognizing sin anywhere that it is found including in my heart and yours in our congregation God sees that and we need to recognize he will have the final say on and so we need to be considerate of that as well here's the second question what specifically is God condemning here So he's going to have the final word on sin but what is he saying and one of the things that I think is surprising if you're looking at uh, the text in front of you, one of the things that's surprising is that this text is underlining how pride and idolatry are key features of sin. Pride and idolatry. So pride is the orientation of things to oneself. It's thinking you're the most important. The world is supposed to you know, bend to your desires. It's supposed to orient itself to you. Pride. And that's a, that's a feature of our sin. And idolatry is the worship and service of something other than God. And it's what often inspires us to do all kinds of evil things. We 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 are worshiping and serving something. We'll make choices to try to get that. Now, that means that God cares not just about the activities, but he cares about our hearts. So it's not enough to say, here are the things that are naughty and bad, stay away from that. No, he looks into us and he says, Pride and idolatry. Those are those are at the core of what the problems actually are. So we're not just trying to minimize bad behaviors. When God says, I will have the final word on sin, he's looking in and he's saying, "That stuff that's in you. That's really what's causing the outworking of these behaviors. So God specifically condemns that twin feature of pride and idolatry. What does he say exactly? What's, that's my next question. What, what is he going to do? So he's going to have the, the last word on it, but, but what is that word? And what we find out is, he says, I'm well aware of what's going on. It will not always be this way. And there's actually this verse in there that feels like it's misplaced. Look with me at verse 14. Maybe you noticed it when we were reading. It, it feels like this was an editorial flip up. Look at it. It says, the earth for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters over the sea. Where did that come from? Right now, my, um, the mouse for my computer, I don't know if it's a Bluetooth issue or a battery issue, but when I click the button and I move something, it'll unclick the button, even though I'm still holding it down. And so sometimes I'll be trying to highlight something in my notes and it'll only highlight a part of it. And Then I'll, maybe I'll cut and paste and, and it'll be like, Ah, oh, this doesn't belong here and I have to go back and, and fix it. It feels like there was an editorial mistake like that in the book of Habakkuk. Like we're talking about the judgment of God and then out of nowhere, out of seemingly nowhere, verse 14 lands and you're like, wait a minute, this is a beautiful proof text. Like this is a, like, I just want this one on my coffee mug. I don't want all the other garbage because that stuff is scary and weird, but I'll put this one on my coffee mug or on you know, my, my life mission statement or whatever, this is the one that I like. And you go, where did this come from? Well, God is saying, he's giving us this little indication, this is not how it's always going to be. The, the, the evil, the violence, the disregard for the things of God, this is not how it's going to remain in Here's why. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day, the knowledge of God will populate the earth and there will be no place for evil anymore. Judgment will come and it will be final and conclusive at the return of the Lord. He's giving us this preview of the coming attraction that yes, we live in a broken world full of evil, but there's a day coming where God will make all things right and he will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. And that hope that we share helps us to live faithfully right now. And it means that we can look at whatever regime is going on, whatever, whatever power is happening in the world, all these different things, and we could say, that's temporary. That's very temporary. In fact, Babylon, okay, um, they did overwhelm the Israelites. They, did, they wiped them out. They, they knocked everything down. The temple came down. They exiled all the people, and the, the Babylonians were like, ha 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 right we beat you we're we're in charge we're in control we're awesome and you're not but then God gives us that word that forward-thinking word it's not going to stay this way these people full of this pride this is not how it will always be and if you read human history you find out about it in fact in in Daniel chapter 5 we find out how this plays out Babylonians do get their way they come in they're they're sitting there they're kind of, you know, boasting about all their accomplishments, the King Belshazzar is like, man, I'm I'm so awesome. I'm just going to throw a party with all of my nobles and officials, and we're going to get raging drunk, and we're just going to revel in how amazing we are. And this is Daniel chapter 5, and it tells us in Daniel chapter 5 that the hand of the Lord shows up at the party and begins writing on the wall. And the King Belshazzar is freaked out. He doesn't know what it means. It's a different language. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. He goes, I don't know what that, what those four words mean. And he's calling all of his officials and everyone, can you please interpret this? What does this word mean? I don't get it. And he's freaking out. And then they realize, well, we can't interpret it. But we remember there's a, there's a guy named Daniel and he has the spirit of the gods in him. He does a lot of interpreting. He's done some stuff along the way. Let's call him. Daniel comes in, he reads the words on the wall and he says, uh-oh, uh-oh, bud, this isn't good for you. Uh, here's what many, many, talk. Tell- parson means your days are numbered you're sitting around boasting about how incredible you are god is saying today the gig is up you think that you're in this you know place of security and stability and you're always going to be here and everyone's always going to bow down to you and worship you He says your days are numbered you've been weighed and found wanting god looks at you and he says no i'm not putting up with this anymore and in Daniel chapter 5, it tells us that very night, Belshazzar was struck down, and his kingdom was handed over to another. Just like that. So when we look at the world and how we find it, one of the things that we recognize is this is not how it's always going to be. And sometimes God will bring judgment in real time. And all these things that we think are formidable and just permanent and stable, we recognize, no, God. God's not okay with that. And he can easily have a change of you know what's going on in the world to bring about His glory in real time. All right, what effect does this have for us? Look at verse 20 once more. Here, here's how this ought to affect us. This is a bizarre one. Um, verse 20: The Lord is in His holy temple; let all the earth be silent before Him. One of the things, if we're trying to write down how to apply this message today, uh, one of the things that we could pray for is the the work of the Spirit that results in our silence. It's an interesting thing, but it's one of the ways that when you come under the, the weight and the glory of God's revelation, sometimes the best thing that, that happens is you can't talk anymore. Now, I know that as we've walked our way through Habakkuk, we've encouraged being honest and bold and sharing our concerns and our complaints with God. And for sure, that's definitely a feature of this book. But when you begin to recognize the word of God's judgment on sin, that he will have the final say on sin, one of the appropriate ways that this shows up is when we feel the weight of that in such a profound way that we can't even talk. I'll show it to you in a couple different places. The first is Revelation chapter 8. In Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, and it's giving these future previews of what's to come, and John is seeing these visions and Full of symbols and all kinds of incredible things that are hard to wrap our heads and hearts around. But but there's a section in Revelation where there are these different scrolls that are sealed with wax, and there's only one person who has the authority to to open it, to open that envelope, and to be able to look at what's going on. And they they represent these different periods of time. And so they're opening the seals, and then in in Revelation chapter eight, in verse one, it tells us that the seal was broken. We'll put it up on the screen. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So in heaven, with all of the, the glory that is described there with angels and trumpets and loud voices and all, all these things that are happening and, and just all of creation worshiping the lamb that was slain, but they get to this seal and they open it and it just goes silent. Which is weird, right? We don't we don't like silence. In fact, if I were to sit here for a minute and not say anything, we would be really weirded out, right? Like you, we can only stand that for for a few moments. But there's about a half an hour of silence in the book of Revelation when that seal is open. Sometimes when the word of the Lord comes to us, it stops up our mouth. That's what Job has happened to him. If you've read the book of Job, Habakkuk is actually called the miniature version of Job, which. Very convenient for us because it's a lot easier. Job is uh, a long book and it's really, really rugged because awful things happen to him and he's wrestling with God and he's got some really crummy friends that are trying to give him words of counsel and it's not going well. They're trying to explain why his life is so busted up and it's not not helpful at all. Um, And Job is being honest with God and he's saying, man, God, I don't get it. Like I... I just don't get, I wish I could talk to you face to face because this is so perplexing to me. And for for 37 chapters, there's a wrestling with God. And then God speaks in verses 38 to 39. God begins to speak to, Job, to his friends first. And he's like, you guys are crummy advisors. And he just silences them right away, just like that. Then he turns to Job and he begins to talk to Job. And Job has an opportunity to, to talk back. God invites it. And this is chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. For Job, when he heard the voice of God, he said, that's enough to keep me silent. I don't have any further accusations of God. I I spoke, but it was out of place. I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm putting my hand over my mouth now. See, when we recognize God's word of warning that he will have the final say on sin, one of the things that we should have happen is we should be quiet before him. I don't know exactly what that looks like, and I'm not willing to try to manipulate it, but I think that the work of the Spirit will sometimes say, okay, now's the time to sit. Well, what does this mean for us Finally. What does this mean for us finally? If we recognize that God will have the final word on sin and we recognize that sin is a problem that we all deal with, what hope is there for us? If God is going to judge sin in all of the places where it's found, what hope is there for me as a sinner? And what we have found in the book of Habakkuk is uh, this beautiful promise, and actually it, it was last week that we bumped into it, but it tells us the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by his faithfulness. And it's telling us how we live with a holy God while we wait for his consummation to come, while we wait for him to come and make all things right. We live by faith. I didn't point it out last week. Uh, I'm going to point it out this week. If you've read the book of Romans, it's it's one of the most magnificent books in the Bible. It is, uh, some have called it the Mount Everest of the Bible. It gives you, it's it's the Apostle Paul writing a document on the gospel, explaining what it is and how it will work. What is incredible about the organization of this gospel document is on the front end, he starts it out with the book of Habakkuk. And that's kind of the thesis statement of the book. In Romans one seventeen, he's quoting from our chapter today. And he says, here's how this whole gig works. Here's how God has rigged the world. He says, there is a righteousness from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. And then he spends this beautiful letter showing us what that really means. So how how do we as sinners live with this holy God, recognizing that he will have the final word on sin? We live by faith in the promises of God. We live by faith in the hope that he will make all things right, including us. We live by faith knowing that he has made a way for us as sinners to come into the presence of a holy God. We live by faith knowing that he sent his son to pay the penalty of sin on the cross, to to be the one who was willing to take the punishment that I deserve so that I could have the hope of glory. He was willing to die in my place so that I could live forevermore with him. He was willing to do everything that was required of God for my salvation, yours. The righteous live by faith in him. And in fact, what he did was he took that wrath of God and that shame of sin and he took it on himself. You guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was arrested and then executed, what did he pray? Back in our passage, there was that cup that was going to be given over. It was the Lord's cup to be drank by those evil perpetrators exploiting other people. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord himself prayed like this, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed with agony and with sweat, with drops of of blood coming through his sweat. He prayed with such agony, knowing what it was he was doing. He was about to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. He went to the cross to bear the penalty and the punishment for our sin. He went to the cross to die for us so that we could live forevermore. So what does this mean for us? God does have the final word on sin. And as Christians, we, we, we say, here's his word for me. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. He died in my place so I could live forevermore. I live by faith and the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would, by your Spirit, allow the gravity of these warnings to land on our hearts so that one of the things that happens is a silence for you. And maybe we leave today and we just have the moments this afternoon where we just sit, with you. we just acknowledge your your word and its effect on us. Lord, we're grateful for the good news of the gospel that you sent your son to die in our place, that he drank the cup of your wrath for us, so that we, by faith, could claim the promises that he offers us. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, the hope of glory. Lord, we pray, I pray for everyone in here who can hear my voice and those that are watching online. Would you, by your spirit, allow every person to experience saving faith Jesus Christ let them come to that moment of decision where they where people say he did that for me I trust I believe in him I give my life to him and then Lord help us to live by faith in him help us to live beautifully in this world knowing that one day you will return and make all things new. we pray in Jesus amen